0: We will be finishing up John chapter 18 today, the Gospel of John, and entering John chapter 19 as well. We have an expression that we use sometimes, it's a figurative phrase really, that's used to describe well known court cases. We sometimes refer to a famous trial as the trial of the century. Of course, that phrase is merely uh, just the the opinion of the one who's using it. In fact, a well-known attorney, F. Lee Bailey, made this comment many, many years ago about that phrase, the trial of the century, quote, "'Calling court cases the trial of the century is a traditional bit of American hyperbole, like calling a circus the greatest show on earth. Nearly every juicy tabloid trial in our history was called the trial of the century by somebody. Well, nonetheless, I was thinking through various famous trials that some might say are worthy of trial of the century status. I thought of the trial of Lizzie Borden, the Scopes Monkey Trial, the Lindbergh Kidnapping, Adolf Eichmann Trial, The trial of Charles Manson and the Manson family, Ted Bundy, and, of course, the O.J. Simpson trial. I'm sure you can think of others. Well, they might all be famous trials, but they all pale compared to the trial that we are studying in the Gospel of John, the trial of Jesus. His trial was not just the trial of the century, it was the most significant and the most unjust trial in human history. Now, we have seen this as we've studied the Gospel of John, that all the way along during Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, the religious leaders over the nation of Israel had wanted to get rid of him. They had even tried on occasion unsuccessfully at different times to seize him. And then finally, on the Thursday night that Jesus and his disciples partook of their last Passover meal together, and after he gave his followers some important final instruction, Jesus was arrested right outside the city of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley there, in the Garden of Gethsemane arrested by a group made up of some of the Jewish authorities and a cohort of Roman soldiers. Jesus was immediately taken by that arresting party, bound to appear before a man named Annas. He was an influential man who had once been the high priest After that, Jesus was led in the middle of the night to the home of Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest at that time. And then in the early hours of Friday, he appeared before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body over the nation of Israel, appeared before the Sanhedrin where they did affirm their belief that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy because of his clear claims to be the divine promised Messiah. Finally, right after daybreak, Jesus was taken to the praetorium. This is all in the city of Jerusalem, taken to the praetorium. That was the headquarters of Pilate. He was the Roman governor at that time. They took him there to be officially tried in a Roman court. There was a reason for that. At that time in history, the Jews did not have the right to carry out capital punishment. They were under Roman rule, Roman oppression really. Since they did not have that right to carry out capital punishment, they needed the Roman governor to sentence Jesus, to be executed. But as we learned last time, God was the one orchestrating all of this. It was all under His sovereign control. As everything has been throughout history, God was working to bring about His own eternal plan of redemption. It was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. It was prophesied by Jesus Himself that He would be executed a certain way. He would be crucified. And that was the way the Romans executed someone. So, it had to be carried out by the Romans so that Scripture would be fulfilled. The problem was that Pilate, the Roman governor who interrogated Jesus on his own, could not find any crime worthy of death that Jesus had committed. Now, the religious leaders had done their best along the way to make it appear that Jesus was a rebel, an insurrectionist who claimed to be a king, and that he was therefore a political threat to the Roman Empire, but Pilate, a Gentile, or Roman, saw through their lies. He knew they had their own agenda. He knew they hated Jesus. However, when Pilate asked Jesus directly, do you claim to be a king? We saw this. Jesus did answer that, yes, he indeed was a king. But he also explained something important, that his kingdom was not of this world. We saw that in John chapter 18, starting at verse 36. It's such an important passage. Let me read verse 36 and 37 again. Jesus answered Pilate, "'My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm.' Therefore Pilate said to him, "'So you are a king.'" Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, and hears there means hears and believes. Then in verse 38, you find that Pilate, after hearing Jesus say that, he went outside the praetorium where the Jewish leaders were waiting. They would not go inside that Gentile residence. And there he gave his verdict. That was the conclusion of his own interrogation of Jesus. Verse 38 says, I find no fault in him. Now, the author, the apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples who was with him in the garden when he was arrested, John does not record something that happened at that point Pilate then sent Jesus to appear before somebody else, Herod Antipas. We find that in Luke's account of this same trial, Luke 23, verse 7. Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. The problem is that after a very short time with Jesus, Herod just sent him back to Pilate. And that brings us to today's passage Which begins at John chapter 18, verse 39. Now keep this in mind. Pilate really wanted to rid himself of this case, but he was stuck. If he just released Jesus, that would have infuriated the Jewish leaders and possibly touched off a riot. The governors were tasked with quelling any, squashing any riots, they were tasked with keeping the peace. And so if a riot started, that could have cost Pilate his position as governor. So today we find Jesus now back from Herod, back at the praetorium with Pilate. And how did Pilate react now to this situation? Well, that's what we find today. We're going to note together two reactions on Pilate's part. Two reactions on Pilate's part. Here's reaction number one. Pilate's desperate appeals to the people. Pilate's desperate appeals to the people. Here's the first appeal. He made two of them. Here's the first appeal. It's an appeal based upon custom. An appeal based upon custom. Speaking to the Jewish leaders, Pilate said this, verse 39, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Now, It is only in the Bible that we find this custom even mentioned, but nonetheless, it was a practice at that time in which the Roman governor could release a prisoner being held by the Romans. That would have been a goodwill gesture, you see, to the Jews since it was Passover. Now, we know from Matthew's account of this scene that by this point, people had started gathering. It wasn't just the religious leaders who were outside. People were starting to hear about what was going on in the praetorium, so a large crowd had assembled. And Pilate knew something about a lot of the people, at least. At least he thought he did. He knew that earlier in the week, when Jesus had entered the city, entered Jerusalem, many had held Jesus as their messianic king, shouting Hosanna, singing his praises. So Pilate was playing on that, hoping that the people would bring pressure on their leaders to release Jesus. So notice how Pilate framed his question to the crowd, verse 39. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? That plan seemed to Pilate to be a pretty logical solution to the fix he was in. However, the crowd was very fickle. And he finds that out, because when Pilate made to them what seemed to him a good solution, here's how they responded, verse 40. So they cried out, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Pilate did not see that coming. Instead of choosing Jesus, the crowd chose one of the worst criminals living on death row in the Roman prisons, Barabbas. Now, Pilate was not aware of something that was going on amongst the people in the crowd. We find that in Mark's account of this trial, Mark chapter 15, verse 11, something the religious leaders were doing, Mark 15, 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask Pilate to release Barabbas for them instead. So what do we know about this man, Barabbas? Well, John simply says, now Barabbas was a robber. Here's what the other synoptic gospels add. Matthew 27, verse 16. Barabbas is called there a notorious prisoner who had participated in bloody insurrection. Mark 15, verse 7. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection, the rebellion. So the Greek term translated robber in our text does not simply depict a petty thief or just some kind of common bandit. The Romans saw Barabbas totally different than that. To them, he was a terrorist. The Jewish zealots or the nationalists considered him one of their own guerrilla fighters, one of those who sought to oust the Roman power by means of violence and intimidation and guerrilla warfare. Isn't this interesting? Because earlier, you'll remember, the Jewish leaders had tried to get Pilate to condemn Jesus as an insurrectionist. And yet now they incited the crowd to demand the release of a man who was clearly guilty of that very crime. What irony! Sadly, what hypocrisy! Peter, one of Jesus' followers, a Jew, would later lay this charge against his own people. We find this later in Acts 3, verse 14. But you, speaking to his own people, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So no doubt, Barabbas was likely the last person that Pilate wanted to release. But he was rapidly running out of options here. The appeal to this yearly custom didn't work. So he made a second appeal. We saw the appeal based upon custom, the second appeal, an appeal based upon sympathy. An appeal based upon sympathy. Now we're in chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, a scourging was a terrible beating. It was a flogging. So Pilate was thinking that... Maybe this is what would perhaps evoke sympathy for Jesus and therefore dissolve this demand for Jesus' crucifixion. Now, if you put what we observe in the other accounts, Matthew, Mark, and so forth, if you take what we observe from Mark's account, what we observe from Matthew's account and John's account, it is possible that Jesus actually experienced two scourgings that day. It's possible he experienced first a lesser beating, you might say, still a beating, before Pilate sentenced him to be crucified, and then a worse flogging after the sentence. So let me just for a moment describe to you the three forms of floggings that the Romans might possibly administer to a criminal of some sort. There was the first form, That was a less severe beating. Don't misunderstand. It was still a terrible beating. It was utilized for lighter offenses like petty theft or vandalism. We might add graffiti to that and so forth. Second form was a more brutal flogging. It was used for criminals whose offenses were a bit more serious. And finally, there was a third form. It was the most terrible scourging of all. The victim was stripped, tied to a post, and then beaten by several torturers, usually the soldiers. They would use a whip with leather cords, cords that were fitted with pieces of bone or lead or metal, You can imagine then such beatings would leave victims with their bones exposed, their entrails exposed at times. In fact, this third form of beating was so savage that the victim sometimes died during the midst of it. And the Romans had no restrictions as to the number of blows that could be administered. That means the prisoner could possibly be bitten, beaten until the soldiers were exhausted. He could be flogged until the point that the soldiers lost interest. He could be scourged until their commanding officer just stepped in eventually and told them to stop. So the question is, what beating did Pilate administer here at this stage in the trials? We do... Conclude from Mark and Matthew's account that Jesus endured that third form of beating certainly after the sentence of crucifixion. And this may well have been an initial beating before the sentence was pronounced. This may have been that first form, the least severe form, but yet which was still very brutal. In fact, the form of the verb John uses here is literally translated, had him scourged. And this is a more general description of a flogging used for being something of a troublemaker. So Luke and Mark's chronology is correct. That means Jesus did receive that terrible third beating associated with crucifixion. In fact, that third beating was many times used because there was another sentence being pronounced. Execution, for example. And that third beating would have occurred after the official sentence was pronounced. One of the reasons for the purpose of that third beating was hastening death due to the nearness of the Sabbath in Jesus' case. The agony of crucifixion would sometimes go on for, for days, so the officials did not want it to run too long for Jesus. He was scourged in that third way before he was executed. That does explain why he was too weak to carry even the cross piece of his cross all the way to the execution site. Matthew 27, 32 tells us that. They found a man in the crowd named Simon whom they pressed into service to bear his cross, meaning that cross piece. But back to our text, it's possible he received two beatings. The point though is that Pilate was still trying to get out of this difficult case. Pilate was still trying to save Jesus from execution, thinking that he could order a beating of some form that would satisfy the crowd's thirst for judgment and vengeance and blood even. That's not all that happened, though. The soldiers who were administering whatever beating Pilate prescribed evidently, were not sympathetic at all because they added their own insults to Jesus' misery. Let's look at them. Here's the first insult they added, a fake crown. Verse 2, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head. This crown was probably twisted together from the long spikes of the date palm it was fashioned into the imitation of a type of crown that the ancient kings, like Caesar, would have worn. They're depicted wearing these crowns at time crowns that sort of radiated out because of the spikes made out of gold looking like the sun. For Jesus, though, the spikes were from this palm tree, and they were sharp, and they would have cut deeply into Jesus' head, increasing his pain increasing the bleeding, fake crown. What an insult. Here's another insult, a fake robe. Verse 2, and they put a purple robe on him. That was likely just a cloak, a tunic from one of the soldiers. They tossed it around Jesus' shoulders and mocked his claim to be a king. Matthew 27, 29 records that the soldiers did one more thing at that point. They put a a reed in his right hand, mimicking the scepter carried carried by kings. Then the soldiers lined up for a third form of mocking. We can call it fake homage. They added these insults, a fake crown, a fake robe. Now fake homage, verse 3, and they began to come up to him. Matthew points out they kneeled down even and to say to him, Hail, King of the Jews, verse 3, and to give him slaps in the face. Once again, Matthew adds some additional commentary. Matthew twenty-seven thirty. they spat on him and took the reed out of his hand and began to beat him on the head with it. How do you explain all this? The savage treatment of Jesus. Well, we saw the broadest way to answer that earlier in the gospel, way back in John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You see what we have here? We're seeing what human nature is, human nature as it really is. But we're seeing something far more significant than that. As I said, God was sovereign over this. We're seeing God's plan of salvation formed in His own eternal mind being unfolded, the substitution of the eternal Son in place of sinners, a substitute to take the torture, take the humiliation, take the shame, and eventually the death that all people deserve. This idea of substitution is nothing new. It's portrayed in the Old Testament throughout the Scriptures. Go all the way back to the institution of Passover, the blood placed on the doorpost so that the death angel passes over. It was foretelling of something picture of the blood of the future sacrificial lamb, the one and final sacrifice, which was Jesus. It's what was pictured in the countless animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. These were all foreshadowing something. They were substitutes to pay for the sins of the people, to at least allow a a ceremonial cleansing so they could continue to function and worship and serve, but they were all foreshadowing the future and final sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus. He fulfilled what all those sacrifices were pointing to. That's why John the Baptist earlier in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he looked up and saw Jesus coming, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was the point of the scapegoat, You remember that? On the Day of Atonement, Israel's high priest would lay his hands on a goat. He symbolically would transfer the guilt of the people's sins to it, that goat, and then rejecting the goat would remove it from the camp. Here's how Leviticus 16, 21, and 22 comment on that. Leviticus 16, then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat And confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. What was that goat? It was a scapegoat, a substitute. It foreshadowed Jesus. So back to our text. Just keep that in mind, that all this abuse and all this ridicule was God's plan for Jesus to suffer for his people, to take upon himself the judgment that we deserve, the shame that we deserve for our sins. You know, I was thinking about this, that even the crown that was placed on his head, even the thorns of that fake crown subtly remind us of our true problem. Our sin, because they remind us of the curse pronounced upon creation by God because of Adam's sin. Genesis 3, verse 18. Both thorns and thistles, the land will grow for you. Thorns only exist because of sin. So the prophecy of Isaiah 53 was being fulfilled in this torture of Jesus, and then finally, of course, through his death that was coming. That reminds you of Isaiah 53, verse 5 again. Listen to the words. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed, meaning healed of our guilt our shame, our sin. By Jesus, He's truly the promised deliverer, the one who is God in human flesh, who came in order to bear the shame and the reproach that our sins deserve. John chapter 1 verse 1 clearly articulates who He was. In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was God, In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the Word became flesh, verse 14 says, and dwelt among us. J.C. Ryle writes, Our Lord was clothed with a robe of shame and contempt, that we might be clothed with a spotless garment of righteousness and stand in white robes before the throne of God. Jesus deserves the spotless garment of righteousness. He deserves the white robe, not us, but He took our shame and contempt that we might be called righteous and have access to God and be accepted by him and loved by him. Well, back to our text. At this point, Pilate went back outside the praetorium and declared his purpose to the crowd. Verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to him, behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is going to work, Pilate's thinking. Parade Jesus out there. And so Jesus was brought out of the praetorium, verse 5. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. You can easily visualize this, right? Jesus standing there before the crowd, bleeding from the thorns, disgraced. It's a rather pathetic sight. I mean, certainly he's a harmless figure, which is what Isaiah foretold. Isaiah 53, verse 3, as one from whom men hide their faces. While Pilate all the while was hoping that that would play upon the emotions of the people and influence them to spare Jesus. So he cried out, verse 5, look, here's how he said it, behold the man It's as if Pilate was saying, look at this pitiful figure. Do you really think he's a threat to anyone? But again, we know the whole picture. We know that Jesus was more than just a man who merely looked pitiful. He was the man the one John 1.14 called the word made flesh, the living eternal Word, clothed in human flesh." and though the people were too blind to see it, when they looked, this very man, even in those moments, was displaying the glory and authority, even in the disgrace that he endured. the glory and authority of God. Pilate had it wrong. Pilate thought that it was evidence that he was not a king, evidence that he had no power and authority. What irony. Once again, Pilate had misjudged the situation. Verse 6, so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify. Even though Jesus had done them so much good, he had healed many, he had taught them. He had freed them from false doctrines and false shepherds. Even though they now saw Him in such a pathetic state, they still hated Jesus so much that they cried out for Him to be cruelly put to death on a cross. The Apostle Paul, again a Jewish follower of the Lord later on, adds this, that despite their privilege of possessing the Scriptures... The nation was blinded by sin, not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah that he was. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8. It's the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, once again, Pilate realized this is not working out. His strategy had failed. Neither appeal worked. So he responded with resentment. Verse 6, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves then and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Just so you'll know, the Greek pronouns there have emphatic force in the Greek language. You take him because I find no basis for any charge against him. You bring him to me to be tried, but you will not accept my judgment. I want nothing more to do with him. That was the expression of obvious exasperation by a man who had lost control of the situation. God hadn't, but Pilate had. Well, that led the Jews then to realize that, well, they now had the upper hand. (laughs) And therefore they demanded that Pilate deal with it. Verse 7 The Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. That was the real reason for their anger. That was the real reason for their fear. His enemies, his opponents rightly understood and recognized that is what Jesus claimed. He claimed not only Messiahship, he claimed to share the rights and authority of the one and only triune God himself. Let me read what he said back in John chapter 5, 21 and following. Jesus speaking, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The Father has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 27 says, Because he, the Son, is the Son of man. That title comes from Daniel's prophecies in Daniel chapter 7. It's a title of God. It's a title of Jesus. So this is what angered the religious leaders the most. Therefore, they would not allow Pilate to evade the issue. They would not allow Pilate to just pass the buck back to them. They were demanding that Pilate acknowledge their legal rights and order Jesus to be executed. And that passionate concern was not lost on Pilate. As I said, the Roman governor was charged with keeping the peace. So even though Pilate cared nothing personally for the Jews, he cared nothing for their religious views, he still had to listen to them. And go along with local law as much as Roman law would allow. Well, beyond that, what the Jews just said uncovered something else about Pilate. And it's seen now in the second reaction. The first reaction, Paul's desperate appeals to the people. The second reaction, excuse me, Pilate's desperate appeals to the people. The second reaction, Pilate's superstitious fear of Jesus. Pilate's superstitious fear of Jesus. Pilate knew he still had to do something. But here's something we need to know about Pilate. He was like many other Romans, maybe even more so. Pilate was deeply superstitious. Now, you know, I've already mentioned to you last time, that during the midst of the trial at some point, recorded in one of the other Gospels, that Pilate's wife sent him a message saying, I had a nightmare about this man last night. Leave him alone. Have nothing to do with him. Send him away. That's on Pilate's mind. But now, even more so, he just heard the Jews say, Son of God. And therefore, fear was triggered within Pilate. Verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. You see, the idea of being a son of God in Pilate's mind meant that he had some sort of godlike powers. He had some divine powers. And that possibility that, that perhaps Jesus was some sort of God in a human form, that filled him with fear. I mean, after all, Pilate just had him beaten. So perhaps Jesus might use these supernatural powers to enact vengeance. So Pilate immediately takes Jesus back inside, verse 9. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? He didn't mean what local village. We know from other verses that Pilate already knew that Jesus had grown up in Galilee. Now, the governor's question was more like this, are you from earth or some other realm like the realm of the gods? Well, Jesus knew Pilate. He knew his heart He knew what Pilate was really inquiring about, and that is Jesus' own nature, and yet Jesus did not give any further explanation. Verse 9 concludes, but Jesus gave him no answer. And just so you'll know, that silence also fulfills prophecy from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Besides, Pilate had already given, Jesus had already given Pilate truth. He'd already told Pilate the truth about his kingdom, already told Pilate that he was living, he'd come from another realm, his kingdom was from another realm. In chapter 18 that I read earlier, Jesus had already explained why he was here on earth. To teach the truth. Call people to believe the truth. And Pilate had already heard the truth, but he had also rejected it. So just remember this. The Bible does teach that when people persist in rejecting truth, God rejects them. We see it in the nation of Israel, 2 Chronicles 24 verse 20. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. The psalmist writes in Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12, But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices, their own ways, their own opinions. Pilate's a Gentile, but likewise had shown no interest in understanding He had dismissed Jesus' claim to testify to truth. So what answer more could Jesus give him? What more could Jesus say to a governor who was more interested in political maneuvering and playing on people's emotions than he was in justice? What could Jesus say more to a governor who displayed superstitious fear but no remorse over his own sin? So, he was silent. Not in an absolute sense. He's spoken before. He'll speak again later, but for the moment, he was silent, did not answer. And that, no doubt, irritated Pilate, which we'll see later next time. As we conclude, though, I want you to think back for me, with me for a moment, about a couple of things from this passage. I want you to think about the people's preference of Barabbas over Jesus. The fact is, Barabbas was the kind of savior that they wanted the Messiah to be. They wanted a political deliverer, to deliver them from Roman rule and oppression. In your Lord's Day bulletin, you have this quote from Richard Phillips. I'll read it. But the people chose Barabbas over Jesus, salvation by the sword over salvation by the cross. And that is still the case with many today. There are those who think, we'll just call it the Barabbas approach, you know, the approach of intimidation and manipulation and violence and force, that that's the way to bring about change. Many are more concerned with political maneuverings and wins like Pilate than with spiritual issues. And at times, sadly, many are Continually trying to blend the two together, thinking the political is the same as the spiritual. But Jesus came not to overthrow political powers. He came to deal with the guilt and power of sin. And That is the true Jesus. And that is the Jesus, just to borrow Pilate's phrase for a moment, that is the Jesus that people do need to behold, to look at. Obviously, Pilate meant something else, that people just needed to see Jesus as a pathetic individual. But we tell people something different. They need to look at Jesus, but they need to see Him as He really is. He's the sin-bearing Savior. They need to put their trust in Him alone. That's always been God's way of salvation. There's never been another way, never been a salvation based upon works said it clearly about Abraham. He believed, and that is what was counted to him as righteousness, to have a standing before God, the belief of trust. That's the consistent message of Scripture. And along with that is this consistent message that it all revolves around a man, this one, the one who would come. It starts in Genesis again. We go back there in our minds. After Adam and Eve... Eve, had given in to Satan's temptation and broke God's covenant by committing the first sin and plunging the entire human race into sin, God spoke right after that of the one who would come, the one who would be even the offspring of the woman. We see that in Genesis 3.15. He's speaking to Satan. God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and her race. Between your seed and her seed, singular, he will bruise you on the head, Satan. It's as if God was saying all the way back in Genesis look at this one. Here he is. He'll be a descendant, a seed of the woman. It happened with Moses. God again said, There is this one coming, Deuteronomy 18 18. God says to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. Jesus telling, God telling Moses, here's the one. Let's keep going in Scripture. What about God's covenant with David? God promised David something, that there would be the one who would come, a coming king who would sit on his throne, wielding royal power, Second Samuel 7, 13, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A prophet, he'll be a prophet, he'll be a king. Fast forward again to the time of Zechariah, during the time of some of the exiles returning, the one promise to come, was presented now in a different office, not prophet or king, but in a priestly office. Here's how God revealed it. Zechariah was told by God to do something. Zechariah was told by God to make a crown, but to make it out of silver and gold, and to set it on the head of the high priest, who at that time was Joshua. Incidentally, I'm sure you're aware that the Hebrew name Joshua is rendered in Greek as Jesus. Nevertheless, once the crown priest, Joshua, was seated on the throne, Zechariah was told to say this, Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on the throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, Not separate offices like they were accustomed to, prophet, priest, and king. Here, two of them are mentioned. So essentially, Joshua was representing something. He was representing the one that was coming in the future. It was a symbolic act, and Zechariah knew that, that it represented someone yet to come. My point, it was prophesied by God himself that there would be this man, this one, who would be a prophet, who would be a king, who would be a priest. And it was that very promised prophet, priest, and king who was standing outside on that balcony on the edge of the praetorium before the crowd in Jerusalem, rejected, shamed, mocked, tortured. And the people did see him. They did behold him. The long awaited Messiah, and yet the very one supposedly longing for him cried out to crucify him. That was stated at the beginning of John's gospel as well, John 1, 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Again, we have a vantage point of knowing how it all turns out, of course, Jesus took all this abuse there that day, and then there was more to come. He went willingly, he wasn't drugged to the cross, he went willingly to the cross to be crucified so that we as sinners might be forgiven, so that the wrath of God was completely poured out on him for all the sins of his people for all time, that they might be forgiven so that we as insurrectionists, rebels, might be restored to God's acceptance and love. And Scripture says he then was raised from the dead. He rose from the dead to prove who he was and that the sacrifice was effective and sufficient. And he's seated today at the right hand of majesty on, on high in heaven, ruling over all things. But Scripture doesn't stop there. This one is coming again. That threw a lot of people off, all those prophecies about his suffering. Well, that was his first coming, but he's coming again. And Scripture says it'll be in power and glory. The Bible tells us at that time that a great number of God's chosen nation, the Jews, will respond. It was prophesied by Zechariah as well, Zechariah 12:10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They'll understand. It's in the future. The Apostle Paul, again, A Jew adds this in Romans 11 as he looked ahead to that when the Lord returns that many Jews will believe in him. Listen to Romans 11 verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And then verse 26, he quotes from Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 31, and Isaiah 27. Listen, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's coming. So today, yes, our message is... Behold Jesus, look at Him, but see Him the right way. See Him as the promised one. See Him as the one who offers cleansing from your sin. See Him as the only way to have access to heaven. It is through trust in Him alone. That is the good news we preach. And you know, those who believe that, can say something in a more profound way that Barabbas could have said in a shallow way. I mean, Barabbas could have rightly said that Jesus suffered in his place. But when it comes to God's judgment on sin, all who trust in Christ may say this, Jesus died in my place. I'll conclude with these verses, Romans 10, 12 and 13. Again, the Apostle Paul in verse 17. Romans 10. For there is no distinction, this is today, no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over, is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the account of this trial of all history was recorded. Those who were there, those who observed it, those who were told about it, so that we might be reminded of the consistent message of your word, that you are a holy God who hates sin. And a God who is perfectly just and must punish sin, but the consistent message that it was always going to be judgment placed upon a substitute, the one who would come, the one who was the perfect man, who lived out perfect righteousness, perfectly obeying all the moral law of God, and the one who went willingly to pay the debt the only debt, the perfect Lamb of God, taking sin upon Himself to satisfy divine wrath. Thank You for the message that all who hear that, the truth, and all who trust in that are saved, forgiven, and given new life as followers of the One who came. Father, may we who know Him already ponder the wonderful thought of what he did for us. May those who don't know him yet, may you open their hearts to do that work only you can do, to open their hearts to see the truth, to see the man, to behold Jesus, and to believe who he really is. In his name we pray, amen.